0: As we've read these text words, especially in verse 15 where Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This harkens back to the days when Paul was not a Christian, but he was anti-Christian. He was a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader known as Saul of Tarsus. And Scripture tells us in the book of Acts and Paul tells us elsewhere that it was Saul of Tarsus who helped to make the first Christian martyr in the church after the days that Christ had ascended. As Stephen the deacon became Stephen the martyr as he was stoned to death by the Jews, Saul of Tarsus was the one in charge of his execution. These were dark days for the church As Saul was living up to his tribal name, the tribe of Benjamin, who Scripture says in Genesis was like a ravening wolf, he was a ravening wolf against Christ's sheep. These were such dark days for the church, and Paul tells us in Acts 8.3, or Scripture tells us that as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So there was Saul, the Christ-hater, Saul, the Christian killer, traveling on his way to Damascus with letters of authority to go and persecute more Christians and to take men and women and commit them to prison. His people, his very own people, the Jewish leaders, are the ones that put Jesus Christ to death, and now Saul committed his life to put all of Christ's followers to death. He's told us here in 1 Timothy that during those years, he was a blasphemer. He describes himself by three different descriptors. He says he was a blasphemer. He was among that same religious group of Jews who denied that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, and rather they said he was an illegitimate son, and who knew who was Father was. They made this accusation, this blasphemous accusation. He tells us he was a persecutor. He was like a hellhound hunting down and tracking down God's people. And he tells us that he was an insolent man, or you might say a, a wanton aggressor. He didn't just persecute Christ's church, he did it with gusto. And it was his goal not just to hurt them, not just to suppress them, but to totally wipe them out. And he told us that he did all of this ignorantly in unbelief. This doesn't excuse his sin. If anything, it makes it worse, for this was not an innocent unbelief. It was a wanton and willful unbelief against the great light of the gospel that God had shined upon the Jewish people in the coming of Christ And yet, Saul of Tarsus rejected it. He was so spiritually blind that as he put Christians to death, he actually thought he was doing God a favor. And he thought that God was pleased with this activity. He didn't realize. He was so blind, he didn't realize he was actually fighting against God himself. And he was fighting against Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. But we know that on the Damascus Road, all of this changed in an instant when Saul of Tarsus was on his way to do harm to Christ's people. He tells us in Acts 9 that suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here, the risen, glorified Jesus Christ appears to Saul, stops him dead in his tracks. And in one instance of being in the presence of Christ, Saul of Tarsus' heart is changed from the inside out. And he goes from being a bitter enemy who had no respect for Jesus Christ to bowing down before him like a slave before his master and saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? Anything you say and I'll do it. Think what an extreme change this was in such a short time. This one encounter with Christ changed Saul of Tarsus forever One minute, he's cursing Jesus and his people, breathing out threatenings, it tells us. And the next minute, he's calling Jesus Lord. One moment, he's a brash, would-be destroyer of Christ and his people. The next minute, he's bowed down, confessing Christ. And then he goes to spend the rest of his life as the servant of God's people and the servant of Christ. Three days after this encounter on the Damascus Road, He's baptized. And think of this, that this this Christ hater, this Christian killer, is now baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptized into Jesus Christ, professing faith in Christ. And it tells us he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of Christ. What a change God wrought by His grace in Saul of Tarsus. Acts 9 tells us that after his baptism... It's not just that his own mentality, his own attitude towards Christ changed, but he goes out and preaches the gospel to others. It tells us in Acts 9.20 that immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Here he goes forth to his own Jewish people, preaching the highest Christological confession that you could say about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, which makes him equal With God. This reminds us that God is so gracious. God is so merciful in saving sinners. Our Lord Jesus is such a Savior that in a moment, God took this sheep killing wolf and made him a pastor over the flock of God. He took this enemy of Christ and made him the lead ambassador of Christ, to go and represent his name and preach his message to the ends of the earth. So this is part of what Paul has in mind here when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He tells us in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When he wrote here to Timothy in verse 14 that the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, he's highlighting the inward change that God wrought in him by the gospel. He went from unbelief to faith. He went from hatred of Christ and his people to love. And suddenly, he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he'd formerly rejected. Now, all these years later, Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy as he is pouring out his life Paul is pouring out his life and preaching Christ and helping Christ churches he's writing this letter to young Timothy and in the middle of his writing Paul bursts into thanksgiving and praise to Jesus Christ for his mercy and redeeming grace he's offering up thanksgiving to Christ for redeeming him and this brings us to our text verse which will be our main focus. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So with the Lord's help, I want to preach on this theme, the chief of sinners saved. We'll see it in three basic thoughts. First of all, behold the wonder of this faithful saying. Behold the wonder of it. Throughout Paul's epistles, he gives five different fateful sayings. He'll make a statement and he, he tags on to it. This is a fateful saying. But only in this one does he add this disclaimer or this is in today's language, content warning. What I'm about to say is so outlandish it it is so over the top unbelievable that I'm telling you before I even say it it's worthy of all acceptance what I'm about to tell you is worthy for everyone to hear and to believe the content of it that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners it's as though he's preparing people before he even says it that this is worthy of acceptance get ready brace yourself Be ready to believe this, even though it may sound too good to be true, it's absolutely true. You've heard the saying maybe before that somebody will be talking about something, they'll say, it's a thousand wonders. Well, this really is a thousand wonders. This is the wonder of wonders. As Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, this speaks of the wonder of the Incarnation. Christ Jesus came into the world. This is the high and holy mystery of the Incarnation. Not a mystery as in a problem to be solved, but mystery as in a doctrine of the Christian faith which God has revealed, but it is above human understanding. So we bow before the mystery and we confess and believe what we cannot comprehend. And it moves us to worship God. This doctrine of the incarnation, as John tells us in chapter 1, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we know and confess what the incarnation is. We know exactly what the incarnation is. It's that Christ, the Son of God, became man. It's as we confess in the Nicene Creed every time we recite that creed that Jesus Christ, who is the eternally begotten Son of God, who is of one substance with the Father, who is begotten and not made, that that Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. And He did this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as our Lord Jesus became man, it was without any change. He did not cease to be God. It was without any mixture. His his humanity... As he took on humanity was not mixed with his divinity and his divinity was not commingled with his humanity. But our Lord Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, two distinct natures, but not separate. And he's one person with two natures forever. We know what the incarnation is, but we cannot understand how the incarnation is, how this is, is mystery that is far beyond our creaturely comprehension. We will never be able to comprehend how it is that this is so. How is it that the creator of all things is now born of a human mother? How is it that he who is the ancient of days is born as a baby less than a day old, as one of the Puritans asked? How is it that He who is the eternal Logos lives as a time-bound man? That He who is Yahweh, who spoke at Mount Sinai and thundered forth the law, He is born under the law to fulfill the law for us. How is it that God the Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, and who as to his person is distinct from the Father, yet as to his essence is one with the Father, equal to the Father in power and glory. Christ, the second person of the holy, life-giving, consubstantial, and undivided Trinity. How is it that he came down and down and down in his humiliation And as he became man, as he took to himself a true human nature and was born as a man at Bethlehem, and descended down into the depths of death in his humiliation, and descended even to the death of the cross, as he hung upon the cross, and he who created all waters cries, I thirst. He who is the God of glory suffers as man of sorrows. He who is the prince of life dies, Acts 3 tells us. And he who is God without change, who cannot change, who is immutable and impassable, takes to himself a true human nature and becomes man yet without change and suffers in our nature. This is the mystery of the incarnation and how this is we cannot fully comprehend but we believe and confess it with all our heart. And if it were not for this, none of us could be saved. Now, Paul has told us of the wonder of the incarnation. We know what it is. We cannot fully comprehend how it is. But we do know exactly and precisely the why of the incarnation. We know why The Son did this. We know why the Father sent Him. Paul tells us exactly here. He did it to redeem us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ the Son of God became man for the benefit and salvation of wicked, ungodly sinners. That's exactly why He did it. This is the wonder of Christ's redemption. He came into the world To save sinners. He came to reconcile us to God. Not to help sinners save themselves as so many false gospels preach today. Jesus didn't come to try to save sinners. But he came to save all of God's elect. And he succeeded in this. You might know what it's like if you're like some of the brethren that I worship with at Heritage. You might like to hunt. If you're like me, you may be a a great hunter, but not so good at finding. Or you might enjoy fishing, but you're not very good at catching. Well, not our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to save all of God's elect, and he accomplished it, bringing many sons to glory. He did not leave one behind. This is the wonder of Christ's superabundant grace. Paul says he came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul expands this faithful saying far beyond himself to include all of God's elect. And tells us in verse 16 that his conversion is a pattern to those who are going to believe hereafter. John Trapp put it this way that God... Set forth Paul's conversion so that, as full demonstration and sufficient evidence, so that all might see and say, "There is mercy with Christ, that he may be feared." God sets forth Saul of Tarsus and his conversion as an example, a pattern to those who would believe on Christ after him. You remember in First Samuel when David came to Ahimelech the priest at Nob, and Ahimelech the priest gave David the sword of Goliath that they had there. And David took that sword, remember, and said, there's no sword like that sword. And he made use of it. Well, the Israelites had kept that sword of Goliath as a trophy. Remember how that that day by the Help of the Lord, David went to that towering giant, that impossible foe, and by the power of God slew that giant, the champion soldier of all the Philistines. And remember how all the multitudes, that massive army of Philistines was gathered behind their Goliath. But when David slew Goliath, remember how that he decapitated me, he, he took off Goliath's head and shook it at the Philistine soldiers and all of them broke and ran they went into full retreat why was that it's because when they saw that their champion their giant soldier their their best soldier was defeated they knew david could beat any of them if he beat goliath they knew they were defeated the israelites didn't have to collect every piece of every Philistine armor and weaponry as a trophy of that day of battle. No, they had the sword of Goliath, and if their champion David could defeat Goliath, Israel could beat them all. Well, it's as though the Lord sets forth Saul of Tarsus as the Goliath sinner, the chief of sinners. And if the Lord Jesus Christ was merciful and gracious and saved him, he can save any sinner. It reminds me of uh, a man that my grandpa told me about. My grandpa worked construction most of his life. He said there was this one construction worker. He knew that when he would come on to a new job, there may be hundreds of men on that large construction site. That man would hunt down and find the meanest, toughest man on that job and pick a fight with him and beat the guy up. And he said after that, nobody on the whole work site would mess with him. Why? Because they knew if he beat the toughest one of them, he could beat any of them so they wouldn't bother him. Well, in saving Saul of Tarsus, it's as though God has saved the very worst. And this is an example for us to remember. If he saved Saul, he is well able and he's willing to save any sinner. So if Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom... Paul was chief. And if this is a pattern, a prototype, an example for all those who believe on Christ, then dear sinner, wonder at this and be saved. Be amazed with this grace and be saved. Turn from sin to this wonderful Savior and find Him as your Redeemer. You may say, well, I'm afraid I'm too sinful. I'm afraid I'm too wicked. If you knew my thoughts, if you knew the things that I'd done, if you knew the secrets of my heart and mind, you would realize I'm I'm too wicked. My heart is too dark and filthy and sinful for me to come to Jesus Christ. Well, dear friend, I ask you, have you ever dragged Christians to prison, men and women? Have you ever led a group to stone to death a Christian deacon and snuff the life out of him in a cruel and barbaric death. Have you ever done that? Well, even if you had, there would be mercy for you and this gospel would be for you because Saul did that. And there was mercy for him. There's mercy for you no matter how many, or matter, no matter how evil your sins. You may say, well... Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to save me because I don't even really believe everything I've heard about Him. I don't really believe the Gospel. I have my doubts even as to whether God exists or not. I have my doubts as to the Christian faith. If that's your condition, well, dear friend, it sounds like you're a doubting sinner. sounds like you're living in the sin of unbelief. Well, Christ Jesus came into the world to save unbelieving sinners and to make believers out of them. Come to Him as you are. Come to Him in your unbelief, with your unbelief. This is a sin from which He will cleanse and forgive you and change you and give you the faith that you need to believe upon Him. You may say, well, I've heard the gospel, I've heard the word of God and You know, I know in the back of my mind it's true. I know that the gospel message is true. But so far I've been unwilling to part with my sin. I've been unwilling to turn from sin and come to Jesus Christ. Well, you sound like a sinner of the unwilling kind. Well, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even unwilling sinners, And to make sinners willing in the day of His power. Come to Him and He will give you the willingness. It's all in Him. And none of this salvation is in you. No matter what excuse, no matter what objection, no matter what sin. Come to Jesus Christ and you'll find Him. This wonderful Savior that Paul describes. For those of you who are believers and maybe you struggle, maybe you struggle with assurance of salvation, you may say, well, I'm I'm so sinful sometimes, I just, I don't know how I could really be saved and still sin like I do. You struggle with indwelling sin, every believer does. And some days you can really see, you can really see the progress, you can see God is changing me into the image of Christ. I have a new heart and mind. I don't think about sin like I used to. I love God in a way that I didn't before. And yes, I still sin, but I do not enjoy sin. I do not love sin like I used to. And I do love God in a way that I didn't before. But you still struggle with indwelling sin. And some days you wonder, is there any way I'm even saved? Well, just remember, dear believer, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's not done saving you yet. Yes, he has saved you from the penalty of sin and all the wrath of God against you is absorbed there at the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection. He is saving you now from the power of sin as he helps you die to sin and live under righteousness. And in the future, he will save you totally and completely from all the presence of sin, never again will you sin against Him. But that day is not here yet, but until it is, He is saving you and will save you. And keep looking unto Him and finding strength and grace in the truth of this faithful saying. Dear believer, today this teaches us and reminds us to take hope. In this day we're surrounded by So much anti-God, anti-Christian propaganda and such hatred of the true gospel, even from so many professing Christians that preach a false gospel. But just remember, if God saved Saul of Tarsus, he can save anyone. And this means there is never a sinner on earth, that we could point our finger at and say that one is outside the scope of God's grace, that one is outside the reach of Christ's salvation. We can never do that. We cannot prove anyone on earth is outside of this fateful saying. It gives us hope. That if God saves Saul, he can save anyone, no matter how twisted, no matter how corrupt, no matter how evil. And it gives us hope to keep praying for sinners and to keep giving them the gospel and not to lose hope. So we've seen the wonder of this fateful saying. The wonder of the incarnation of Christ and of his redemption of sinners. Secondly, Let us enter into the worship of this faithful saying. In verse 17, Paul tells us, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. None could bring about such a wonderful salvation except for the all-powerful King, the triune God of glory. Paul is giving, has has given thanks to Christ for the salvation, and now he breaks forth into thanksgiving and worship and praise to God. And I remind you, dear believer, this worshipful doxology of verse 17 is yours. Paul has expanded this thanksgiving and praise far beyond his own conversion. He's expanded it to include all of God's elect. He came into this world to save sinners. And whether you experienced a dramatic conversion, more like Saul, or if you experienced such a subtle conversion that you don't don't know when you started believing on Christ. You just know that you're believing on Christ and that God has produced repentance in your heart. Maybe you had a very gentle conversion, like Lydia, it says of her, that the Lord opened her heart as she heard the word. Either way, this doxology belongs to you and God calls you to remember and to worship Him for this great salvation. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he can't even finish what he's talking about until he takes a moment to worship God. And I remind you, dear believer, of What a sin it is when we neglect to worship God. When we neglect to worship God in this way, it's in violation of the first commandment. As we confess and as we state in our catechism, the, the summary of scriptural teaching about the first commandment is that it requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. God calls upon us and commands us as His people to worship Him in a way that is fitting. And yes, we never perfectly obey this in this life. And we look to Christ, who's the only man who worshiped perfectly. But as God's people, we do repent of the sin of half-hearted worship, of of. Our thoughts wandering and not really, not really thinking upon, not really engaging our heart and mind in the worship of God. And it calls us to remembrance of this great salvation. This is not to advocate emotionalism or sentimentality. But it does teach us. Paul teaches here, teaches us here by example to give to God. Heartfelt thanksgiving and praise for this salvation in Christ. You know how it can be as a married couple when you've been married for some years and you may find yourself like the Ephesians were spiritually. They had fallen from their first love. You may know what it is to fall from your first love with your spouse and you still love one another, but that flame of love is not raging like it was when you first met. But you know what it is to take a date night and go back to that restaurant where you first went out together. You know what it is to look back through that photo album of the wedding and to rehearse the first time you met and how you got to know each other and how you fell in love. And you know what it is when you remember those things that that fire of love is fanned into flame and it, it stirs the love that you already have for one another. Well, as believers, we can grow accustomed and familiar with this glorious gospel. And it can become just a fact that we rehearse rather than content for doxology and heartfelt praise. And when this does happen... We're called to go back to this, to the glory of the Incarnation. Call to memory this great mystery of the Incarnation. Call to memory the redemptive work of Christ. Call to memory your experience of grace and how God brought you to see your sin as exceeding sinful and Christ as an exceeding great Savior how that He wrought faith in your heart and brought you to believe on Jesus Christ. Go back to it and go back to it and remember and worship God. And let it be known to others. Let it be known to your children, to your grandchildren, of what great things God has done for you. And may it be, when they think of you, they can't think of you without thinking of the glory of the incarnate Christ and his redemption of sinners and God's application of it to you as a believer. So we've beheld the wonder and we've entered into the worship of this fateful saying. Third and lastly, we see the warfare of this fateful saying. Paul has written to Timothy, he tells us in chapter 3, He tells us the reason he wrote this letter. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul has written this letter to Timothy as a pastor. Timothy is pastoring, as far as we know, at the church of Ephesus. And Paul has written this letter to instruct him concerning the guarding the purity and the glory of of the gospel in pure doctrine and practice. And while this applies primarily to pastors, it does apply to all of God's people in some way because it is our responsibility to guard the purity of the gospel in our doctrine and conduct. He tells him in verses 18 to 20, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies, previously made concerning you, that by them you might wage the good warfare. And then he explains some of the problems that are going on, the false teaching and false teachers. He levels this military charge, this official charge that Timothy would war the good warfare against these dangerous teachers who were making a tinker toy out of the law of God, who were Wasting their time and the people of God's time with endless genealogies and fables instead of preaching the truth. And throughout this letter, Paul instructs Timothy that he must stop these men. And today, as God's people, as pastors especially, but also as God's people secondarily, if we would stand our ground faithfully against all forms of false doctrine and time-wasting, law-warping, gospel-twisting, false teaching. If we would live as Christians in this world, in our families, in work, in society, in the church, we must live out of the overflow of the gospel that's summarized in this fateful saying. The message of this whole epistle overflows from the gospel that Paul has described here. Everything in the church and the Christian life flows from this and leads back to this. All of our doctrine, all that we believe, flows out of this that the Father sent the Son to save sinners and God has reconciled us to Himself through His Son and by the work of the Spirit And this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all as we confess. It's out of this that our doctrine flows. The doctrine of the church that Paul will unpack in this letter. He deals with such practical matters in the church as the call and qualification of elders and the qualifications of deacons and the instructions for church worship he instructs them about the long gospel concerning avoiding legalism and as avoiding asceticism. In this letter, he will instruct them not only in their doctrine, but in their practice. The roles of men and women in the church. How to confront and discipline unruly elders. Public prayer in the church and details as to who is to pray, how they're to pray, what they're to pray. He teaches on the details of widow enrollment the conduct of servants and masters towards each other, even to the smallest and most ordinary details like how Timothy needs to deal with his stomach ailment that he's experiencing. So when Paul goes to write to young Timothy with all the problems that needed to be corrected at the church of Ephesus, he writes to him to improve his church doctrine and practice, It's as though he says, well, what will I give him to untangle this tangled web of problems? Well, I'll give him the gospel and everything will flow out of this. And Paul starts by reminding Timothy this fateful saying, this creedal statement of the early church that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Today, as God's people, this reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not Christian kindergarten. Rather, the gospel of Christ is the school, it is the subject matter, and it's our whole world as believers. Paul is instructing Timothy in his pastoral ministry in doctrine and practice. But he sees here, into every detail of the Christian life, the gospel is the entrance. It's the entrance, it's the life, it's the path, it's the very air that we breathe. I'm afraid that sometimes we can think of the gospel of Christ as a bottle for a baby, a milk for a baby. Well, you know, when we're first saved... Yes, this is how we come into the Christian faith. It's through the message of the gospel. But after we outgrow that milk and go on to something stronger, we outgrow that and go on to bigger and better things. But oh no, the gospel of Christ is the bigger and better thing. There's there's never a graduation from this as God's people. It's not like milk in a baby's bottle, but rather the gospel of Christ It's more like oxygen to that baby. I can never forget my firstborn son being born and watching him gasp his first breath of air. Remember that moment like it was yesterday. It was over eight years ago. As he breathed that first breath of air, that wasn't his last, it was just his very first. And he has been breathing ever since. And the bigger his lungs have grown, the more air He breathes in. This is how it is with the gospel of Christ. It's the air we breathe. We need it every moment. We live our whole life out of the overflow of this. We never go on to anything bigger and better. Everything flows from this. We're reminded today that without the incarnational mission of Christ to save sinners... We have no communion with God. We have no access to God. We have no saving knowledge of God. Without the gospel of Christ contained in this faithful saying, we have absolutely nothing. If you take this away, you've taken it all away. So it is not possible for us to overemphasize the gospel of Christ. It is not possible to make too much of the Father sending the Son, and the Father and Son sending the Spirit for the salvation of sinners. We can never hear the gospel too much. We can never preach it too much. We can never make too much of the glorious gospel of Christ. There are a thousand other things we could wrongfully overemphasize. Endless discussions as these false teachers were. Genealogies, disputations about the law. But there is no danger of making much of Christ and his gospel. It's exactly what we're called to do. So yes, indeed, we confess along with Paul that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Dear believer, today a wonder at this. Worship God for it. Engage in the warfare of it until Christ returns in glory, when forever we will worship God in Christ and by the help of the Spirit unto the ages of ages. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your mercy and grace to us, which you have so abundantly showered upon us in Christ. We thank you for bringing us together as God's people into reconciliation with you and to be your temple, to gather and assemble and worship you together and to remember the Lord's death until he comes in the Lord's Supper. And we ask you that you would be merciful to us, bless And strengthen your people. And we pray for the conversion of those who are yet without Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.